Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our regular conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world, and all of the issues that go with that, including hunger, poverty, race, social justice. We're joined today by Dr. Michael McAfee, who's president and CEO of PolicyLink, and has held that position since 2018 after a number of years as the inaugural director of the Promise Neighborhoods Institute at PolicyLink. Um, I had the pleasure uh, and the privilege of listening to Dr. McAfee uh, recently at an all-staff convening of Share Our Strength, in which, uh, Michael, somehow in the space of just 45 minutes, you became kind of a folk hero to <laughs> 300 of our staff. And I still don't know how you did it, but it was I was as riveted as everybody else. And I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to be with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Billy. Uh, Michael, I'm going to want to start by talking a little bit about you know, the, the path that brought you to uh, Policy Link. And I know that you also served in the U.S. Uh, Army. Uh, I know that that was part of your own uh, journey to where you are today. But let's let's just start right at the top by describing a little bit about what Policy Link is, what it aspires to achieve. And then we'll go back and talk a little bit about how you ended up there. You know, Policy Link was started 23 years ago um, by an amazing woman, Angela Glover Blackwell. And Angela coming out of Oakland, California, at that time felt that the DC think tanks were not really honoring the voice, wisdom, and experience of local leaders. She felt that local leaders were national leaders and that the solutions to many of America's problems are being addressed in communities all around the country. And so she started PolicyLink, a research and action organization that's dedicated to advancing this concept that we call equity. And we define equity as just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. So we're, we're a think tank and we do our work with movement advocates, community leaders, and elected officials to make sure that whether we're talking about housing or water or transportation, that it is accessible and affordable to everyone, especially the nearly 100 million folks in America who are living at 200% of the poverty level. So does this mean, Michael, that those of us in Washington, D.C. are not really at the center of the universe the way we think we are? That is correct. And I would say, though, however, (laughs) over the last 23 years, what you've seen is there has been a a, a deeper connectedness at every level around this country. Um, I get the privilege of traveling more than 60 to 70% of the time when um, I'm on the road. And while that may have been the case back in the day, when we were starting to advance this concept called equity, and at the time, quite frankly, even black folks told Angela Glover Blackwell, you should not use that term. Um, It probably won't get traction. But today, what's really exciting is that you see all three sectors have come to the work of racial and economic justice, whether we're talking about corporate America or governments or the nonprofit sector. So while that may have been the case, I think today, no matter where we sit in this country, the consciousness of the nation is rising and people are diving into doing this work of creating a just and fair society. Yeah, and I'd say that's true. I think these points are related, but that's not that's true not only of equity, but this notion that um, that local leaders uh, have something important for us to hear and that uh, have a hand in an important hand in crafting the solution to these problems. That that's uh, kind of a notion that's in vogue today. But 23 years ago, I'd say Dr. Blackwell was kind of on the on the the frontier of 
of helping people understand that. That's right. And, you know, I, I would say the, like the last frontier of, of this work, really respecting the dignity and the wisdom of local folks, is to recognize that, you know, this nation will never be strong if we can't see the humanity of everyone. Um, and we saw that in the COVID crisis. We struggled to decide whether folks were worthy of $300 a month coming from the federal government. We're better than that as a nation. Um, our people are not shiftless and lazy. And so we are, we're making progress, but that's the last frontier that we can actually trust that the vast majority of folks who reside in this country want a better life. They want to work for that better life. And that when given the opportunity to do so, that they will. So let's talk about how you got into this uh, important work. It's been your life's work in, in many ways. Uh, where did it start for you in terms of where were you born? What was your family like? Uh, what motivated you to, to take this path? This Taking this path really started with my family and, and in some ways, some of the origin stories of my family as I was they were told to me. You know, I, I was raised in Kansas City, Missouri, in the middle of the country. And, you know, I was raised in... At a wonderful time in a wonderful neighborhood, quite frankly, you know, we were the, the second black family to move. This was the height of the of white flight in the 70s. And I grew up at a time where, you know, I could ride my bike from sun up to sundown and really didn't have a care in the world. But it was a time when there were a couple of major things socially going on that my parents did insulate me from. You know, busing had started at that time. So my parents took me out of public school and put me in the private school. So early on, I got a sense of living in two worlds um, just by the mere fact of being bused across town um, to go to school, to go to a private school and then come back to a to a community where while we were comfortable, you could still tell that people were struggling. But it also comes from my broader family and understanding their strength. You know, my grandfather on my father's side, he was ran out of Mississippi with his family because he, he hit a white man who wouldn't pay them after picking cotton one day. And, you know, that's a death sentence in Mississippi. So they moved to Sykeston, Missouri, and ultimately settled in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And so I grew up with a family um, that understood how this nation was constructed, um, but protected us from a lot of that stuff. But in that, I saw their strength. I saw how they cared for each other. You know, when I was little, my father, grandfather lived on a farm. We called it McAfee Hill. When I go up there today, it doesn't even look like a hill. It was a small lot. Uh, but they they farmed, they killed hogs and made sausages and all of that. And I remember going up there, playing around, playing in the pig pen, you know, helping to make sausage, hunting and fishing for what was in our freezer. But it wasn't just what was in our freezer. Um, that process of farming and hunting and fishing became a communal exercise. It's how the community cared for itself and each other. And so I grew up with that. You know, my dad was disability retired from the army in his 20s because of heart conditions. And my mom was a nurse. And so my dad did everything from meals on wheels to coaching our little league baseball teams. So between that family origin story of that strength and that caring for our immediate family and the broader community, to the Jesuit priests getting a hold of me, to having seven uncles plus that are fire and brimstone Baptist preachers, <laughs> it was it was it was in my DNA to be of service. No choice, That's right. I just had to figure it out. <laughs> and when and and growing up as a child, did you know as a child the story of your your grandfather standing up for himself in Mississippi? I didn't know that story until I got older. But what I did hear, but um, on my mom's side, I would watch my 
uncle engage with authority, whether it was the police officers or whatever, with a strength that I was always intrigued by, but didn't fully understand. Um, I watched folks defer to my grandmother on my dad's side, Alberta McAfee. You know, they wouldn't come, the police and things wouldn't come up on McAfee Hill without talking to her. Uh, and, and she would always sit in front of her house in the living room in her rocking chair with uh, a pistol, a six shooter in the trash can right there by her by her um, um, a recliner. And so you didn't have to say much because I could intuit it. Even when my dad would tuck his pistol under the seat of his car as we would drive down to West Point, Mississippi to hang out with my grandmother on my mom's side in the summers, you could tell that there was um, there was a ritual to how you protected yourself as you moved through the world. And so I picked up a lot of that stuff and then heard the stories casually as grown folks were talking. And then you ended up in the army. Uh, were there factors in addition to your dad being retired military that uh, led you in that direction? Well, what led me in that direction is, you know, my parents, like so many parents, they knew and cared enough to be able to say maybe good, good education. But because they did not have as many career options that are afforded to me and others today, they didn't really know what else to do other than to help me get a good education. And so that's what they told me to do. They said, baby, get a good education. And as I went into going into the summer of my sophomore year and I'm starting to think about life and what to do, I decided, well, if I can't do anything else, I, I'll, I'll follow my dad's steps and go into the military. So I asked my parents, I went to the recruiting office and they told me that I was still too young, but they had a program called the Simultaneous Membership Program. And if your parents signed for you, you could go to basic training between the summer, the, that, the summer of your junior year going into your senior year. And that's what I did. Went home with the recruiter and they signed for me. That was a way of me hedging my bets because I was afraid to figure out what else to do. I was the first to go to college. Um, and I was playing sports and all, but I really wasn't serious about a career tra trajectory or, or academics at that time. I was still trying. I was just surviving. And so that's how it started um, as a way for me to figure out how to get out of poverty and have a better life. And how long were you in the Army? I was in the Army for eight years and, and graduated from um, Fort Riley Officers Academy. And it was really the military that gave me a sense of the discipline that is necessary to achieve what you want to achieve, as well as the confidence to do so. You know, when you come from some of these backgrounds where you struggle, sometimes we count ourselves out and we, we don't pursue things that we are totally capable of doing because of that fear. I had to get over a lot of that fear. And in many ways, it was um, a special forces captain named Captain John Garza who helped me find my way. Um, and to get over some of that fear and really to become a, a, a man enough to decide on a course of direction in my life and then to pursue it. So I spent eight years in the military and then got out um, as I was getting a deeper sense of my social calling. And that really happened because, you know, in, in college, I was a dilettante, as Captain Garza would call me and play around at a lot of stuff and was not serious. So after I looked that word up, figured out what it meant and got pissed off that he was calling me that. It, it stuck with me. It stuck with me. And I went to D.C. one summer and a friend of mine um, threw parties. And when I went to D.C., it was the first time that I ever saw folks who look like me 
talking about their careers and talking about academic pursuits that weren't just about going through the motions, but was real rigorous intellectual study. And it was the first time that I realized that I actually didn't have, I didn't have that conversation that would allow me to even have a conversation with all the amazing women that I was meeting out there. <laughs> I came back with my tail between my legs. And if you look at my, my transcripts, you'll see I go from like a 2.7, just, just doing me to, to three, five plus being president of the student government, talking about a state of emergency in black America. <laughs> <laughs> you, you raised your game. I, I raised my game. I found religion and, and started getting it together. But it was at this time also that, you know, I had gotten a woman pregnant in college and I was depressed and I stopped going to physical training. And, you know, in college, you get graded for that. So you can flunk out just by not going and showing up. And I go to talk to Captain Garza and he says to me, well, you, you know, Michael, he listens. And I thought he was going to give me a lot of sympathy and he says, well, you know, you come back over here at three o'clock and let me know what you want to do, because I know what I'm going to do. And he says, because you can't at this time it was really just men in, 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 in the programs that he was talking in terms of like infantry and stuff. He said, you can't leave men if you can't figure this out. So I walked past back across the yard, cursing and dejected to myself. And it was the best gift that he ever gave me because he made me choose on a life trajectory. How was I going to take care of my daughter now in partnership with her mom, since we were not together really? And how was I going to begin to crap, cobble together a career that I would be proud of? And it was this confluence of, of, of moments, the strength of my family, <laughs> um, struggling to find a way, and Captain Garza giving me that seminal kick in the butt to really figure this out. Um, with the threat of also getting ready to lose a commission if I didn't get it together. Um, that's how I started pulling it together and getting on the right track. So that's a, that's a kind of a, a fast track of a way to grow up <laughs> quickly, right? That's right. Uh, and, and people always think of the, uh, you know, at least I've often heard and read that when you think of the best of the military, uh, it's really a, uh, a leadership development uh, training ground. Uh, what kind of leadership lessons have you did you bring with you and uh, what kind of leadership lessons have you learned there or challenges that you've had to face and overcome? Well, in many ways, I stepped into this position like Forrest Gump <laughs> um, because I had grown up. And so I've just been running and doing me in this process. And I think that served me well. You can't follow a seminal leader like Angela, but what you can do is be clear about what your God-given gifts are and, and try to manifest those. And so what helped me is that, you know, when I when I got my career in order, I've been blessed to be around seminal leaders like you and John Gardner and Angela Glover Blackwell and Jeff Canada, you know, throughout my career. Um, and these folks have shown me how to lead and how to build institutions. So there's a couple of things that I, I hold as a leader. The first is the importance of one's own constitution. We all are flawed beings, but we have to be on a journey of personal greatness and mastery. Um, before you get into the leadership seat or it's all going to fall and crumble. Um, and I've watched folks be human and also be on that journey of personal mastery. So everything I say starts there. But I also learned the importance of building strong, enduring institutions that can do this work at the scale necessary to solve our nation's problems for so many. 
um, I learned the power of really not being afraid to manifest love in this work and that love is not a soft concept. It is quite powerful. Um, it is a powerful tool to fight against folks who want a very different America. How does that manifest itself in your work when you think about love? It, it manifests myself in the work by me asking a fundamental question. When I took over from Angela, I asked the question, do we deserve to exist still as policy link? And I asked that question not to be provocative, but I don't think institutions deserve to exist simply because they have great brand and had a seminal leader. I think they deserve to exist because they're willing to do the work that the moment requires. And for us, we had put equity on the map with so many others in the equity movement. The question now is, what's PolicyLink's second act? And that second act had to be that we were willing to raise our gaze and think that we could be so bold as to change the nature and logic of our governing institutions so that they could work for everyone. That's the frontier of the work. And so it looks like us pursuing things like creating landmark equity legislation that would rival the 65 Civil Rights Act. You know, our legal and regulatory frame can't just be stuck in 65. It has to continue to evolve if we're going to be able to take on the challenges that we need to take on. Now, some would say that's impossible, but that's what the work is. It looks like us starting a $300 million capital campaign. You know, of color-led organizations really struggle. And when you look at the philanthropic reports, they show that of color-led organizations usually only get 1% to 5% of the capital. But yet we're asked to do so much to save this nation repeatedly. That is unacceptable to me. So we launched a $300 million capital campaign, got the first $50 million at the last quarter of last year. But when you look at our peers in D.C., they all have on average $250 million endowments and PolicyLink had none. It's just not acceptable. And so the, the my origin story and all this coaching that I've gotten over the years really set me up nicely for, for this opportunity. And as a result of it, you see it in the numbers. We've grown from about 55 people to nearly 90. Our net assets have gone from 19 million to over 150 million. And we are more impactful as ever. And so love looks like making sure that we pay corporate level wages, not just surviving wages of most nonprofits. It looks like we give folks three weeks off where we close our entire office so that everybody can rest and restore. It looks like we give folks unlimited leave on top of all of that. It looks like we pay 100% of our employees health benefits. It looks like if you leave PolicyLink, you're going to leave in a loving way. We're going to be a loving and accountable culture. And if you have to go, we're not just going to throw you out. We're going to transition in a way that honors your humanity and dignity, um, but still transitions nonetheless. Those are some of the ways it gets manifested at PolicyLink and that the care of the people has to be front and center before we can talk about caring for that hundred million that you hear me describe. And so that's how I work to try to manifest love with my colleagues. There's nothing that I'm describing that I do by myself. But love starts with the way the leader cares for the folks that, that you're on the journey with, that you're privileged to be on a journey on. And then it can move out from there. And then becomes part of the culture. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciated what you were saying about, um, you know, the an organization should not just exist just because it always has existed. And I always think of something we, we have a partnership with. Warner Brothers Discovery and their uh, new CEO is 
a man named David Zaslav, and I was reading a, a interview with him in, I think, I don't know what, Hollywood Reporter or something like that. Uh, and he said, uh, nothing you did last year matters. <laughs> you know, you've got to basically got to earn it every year. You, it, it's a, another way of saying, you know, you can't rest on your laurels that way. You've got to really, you've got to be relevant uh, in the moment and you've got to adapt to the moment. And I always think about that because, you know, even the most accomplished organizations, um, what they did last year is it creates a foundation, hopefully, but it's what you do with that foundation that matters. And that, that feels to me like what you've done at, uh, what you've done at policy link and the, and the culture that you've created there. Uh, say a little bit about promise neighborhoods, which I know was a big part of your, uh, focus before you became CEO. Um, both what happened with promise neighborhoods, where are they today? And, uh, what impact have they had? You know, Promise Neighborhoods is, is an exciting combination of all these stories that I've been telling. You know, um, I was at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in Chicago um, when Promise Neighborhoods was being cooked up. You know, I had started my career at Phila Philanthropy in Kansas City, and I had gotten fired for pushing too hard, um, expecting that young people who didn't have a lot of resources should have the access to the same quality supports as everyone else. And so overnight, I went from a star to an hungry black man to having to sit and talk with a woman named Dr. Dottie Fannin still for a year as a consequence of folks thinking that I was just angry. And I ultimately got fired from that position. And I got a fellowship with Harvard and HUD and ended up in Chicago for going on 11 years. But at that time, I had gotten into a fellowship, the Annie and E. Casey Children and Families Fellowship. And that is a fellowship that looks across the country every two and a half years, takes in about 16 to 18 folks that they think have the greatest promise for helping children and families take you through a, a program, leadership program that keep us together for the rest of our lives and provides us the supports to be successful in our careers. Well, I was coming to the end of that program and a woman that was a vice president over at K the Casey Foundation said, Michael, I think there's this thing called Policy Link." And they've got a position called the director of the Promise Neighborhoods Institute. And I think you'd be great for it. And having gotten scared now of getting fired trying to do this work, I was uncomfortable. But I also learned I don't let people interview me anymore. So I said, OK, I'll go. When we meet in, in, in New York for our fellowship, I'll meet with the recruiter. And I told the recruiter all this crazy stuff that I would do if I got the position. And she took about six pages of notes. I didn't think she was, it was anything was going to come of it. But I got a call to come out to Oakland, California to interview. And I ultimately got the position. PolicyLink actually designed Promise Neighborhoods for the Obama administration. It was modeled after the Harlem Children's Zone's work. And Promise Neighborhoods simply is a, 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 says, we, we are better than supporting children at one developmental stage of their life. We should hold them and care for them from the time they are conceived to the time that they can compete for a living wage job. And to put that pipeline together for children in places of concentrated poverty is what we were doing. Now, we designed the program. And here it is. We have a wonderful gift. Community leaders had said for many years, we want large sums of money. We wanted to be flexible so we can do what we think needs to be done in our communities. And we need it over a significant period of time. So here it is. You get the federal program. You get $30 million over five years and you have the flexibility pretty much to do what you want. And we're about to lose it because of bad practice. What I mean by bad practice is that 
you know, you get grant writers to write these proposals and then you try to figure out, spend the first year trying to figure out what you and the partners are actually going to do with this grant if you're lucky enough to get it. Well, we didn't have that time because, you know, the Obama years, everybody was it was a deeply charged political environment like now. So two years in, Senator Klein issues an audit of the program. You know, you know, you don't really audit a program two years in. You're just usually getting set up. But there was a lot of politics involved. But what I'm really proud about is that we knew this was the reality that we were in. And our job at the Promised Neighborhoods Institute was to ensure that folks had the technical supports they need to be successful and that we could make this program a permanent federal program because it was not. It was having to be authorized every year. Lo and behold, Senator Klein issues the audit. You know, the government accountability offices really rarely cares about how good you're doing stuff. They're looking for waste, fraud and abuse. Well, they looked at nearly, I think, 40 communities plus. And what they saw was this disciplined results based way the network was moving from talk to action. They decided not to issue the report publicly, but we did because it was describing the way we think folks should behave. I don't think you deserve government money if you're not going to deliver for it. And we were setting up a culture across the country to deliver for the nation's children and families. And so today, Promise Neighborhoods is a permanently authorized program. It has been increased under every administration since Obama. And the reality is it was Senator um, it was Senator Thad Cochran and Senator Mitch McConnell while not supporting it, didn't destroy it, that allowed us to make sure this program was was permanent. So in many ways, Promise Neighborhoods is a perfect manifestation of the results-based leadership that we want to hold, where we can work with anyone across an, an aisle or a political spectrum. We can do deep results-based work, whether it's in Berea, Kentucky, the Mississippi Delta, or some of the cities around this country. And we can provide that pathway out of poverty for children and families. That's what Promise Neighborhoods is. But the bigger story there is how our sector grew up and really learned how to start delivering on the results that are necessary if we're going to be worthy of continual federal investment. And, and so even though it's grown uh, under every administration, it's still got a lot of growth ahead of it, I'm assuming. And uh, it's making me wonder why a lot of uh, the rest of us in the nonprofit sector are probably not doing more on our end to help strengthen and advance promised neighborhoods. I mean, the, the, the concept is just so powerful. And I, I'm mostly familiar with Harlem Children's Zone. Jeffrey Canada was on our board in the early days at Share Our Strength. Um, I, I, I knew what you had said, which it had been the core model for promised neighborhoods. What else should we be doing to make sure that Promise Neighborhoods reaches its its full vision, its full potential. Um, we we should continue to advocate with our elected leaders that it, 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 as long as it continues to be a results based endeavor, that its appropriation should increase to, at the scale of the problem. You know, many times folks think we should not have government involved. But the reality is government is the scaling vehicle to so many of our problems. doesn't mean it's the only vehicle, but it is a significant one. When people talk about evidence-based practice, the white middle class was built off of federal government policy, FHA, the GI Bill. And so 
And we saw in the pandemic what happened with the stroke of a pen by President Biden lifting millions of children out of poverty. And so we need to continue to advocate for government expenditure, but government expenditure that is results-based. Um, but in addition to that, we should also be looking in our communities and saying, where, are, where is the design of our cities undercutting government investment? For example, if you've got networks out there doing a lot of early learning work, making sure that they're implementing the best brain science for, for kids to be able to develop cognitively so they'll be successful in life, we shouldn't be undercutting that investment by having you know, lead leaching through the pipes in the water, as an example that we see in far too many cities, or lead in the paint in the homes because they're old and deteriorating. And so in many cases now, what we should be doing, we should be advocating for these programs that are demonstrating results. And we should also be advocating for our elected leaders to remove the structural barriers and laws that are undercutting, whether it's our charitable investments that we make as individuals or whether it's the expenditure of the government dollars. That's what we need to do now. See where things are undercutting the good work that is being done and remove those barriers. So part of this is about creating political will. And I remember when you st spoke to the Sheriff's Strength staff at our all staff convening, I thought you made a very compelling case for why we needed to be uh, political and why we needed to actually uh, be open to uh, bipartisanship uh, as well. We've always had some tensions within our organization, as other organizations do, about uh, will we talk with both sides, will we work with both sides. Um, and you also made uh, the point that, uh, and we haven't really talked about it uh, yet, uh, today, but you made the point that we've got to be talking, if we're going to talk about hunger and poverty, we've got to talk about race. Uh, and we've got to talk about it in ways that people understand the connection. Say a little bit about that. Well, you know, it, it's hard to solve problems if you really don't get to the root causes. And as much as we want to deny it, the origin of this origin story of this nation, while beautiful in many ways, was also quite harmful in, in other ways. And we can hold that tension. <laughs> we can hold that tension and we can continue to perfect this democracy. Every generation has is extended that invitation to do that. I am, even though this nation, when it was founded, didn't include me in having that opportunity. And that's OK. And so so much of what we care about has to do with race that we don't even recognize it today. And it's it's a, it's a wicked problem that's going to be waiting for us, whether we deal with it today are 200 years from now. We're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to deal with it because it, when you hold on to a hierarchy of human value and then you design places, nations around that, you set things in motion that are hiding in plain sight. And I'll give you just one practical example. Out here in the Bay, everybody's making wonderful salaries, 200,000 plus up. And yet they're complaining they can't make it out here and they can't make it in Oakland and San Francisco, even with two hundred thousand dollar year plus salaries if they have children, because we diminished the public education product. And why did we diminish the public education product? If you read a book like The Color of Law in the most progressive state in the country, you see how race played a role in designing an educational infrastructure throughout California that was designed to keep white kids from being educated to black kids. 
So what does that mean today? It means if you live in Oakland or California and you got a choice to make for your kid, you probably wouldn't choose public education as your first option if you got the resources. And so for all those families who now live in Oakland and San Francisco who had nothing to do with the race based policies of the 70s, when you heard me tell that earlier story about me being taken out of public school because of busing. They now are the beneficiaries of the consequence of that bad policy. They are struggling to make ends meet, even though they're doing very well financially because of that decision. And there are decisions like that all across this country where the sins of race-based policy still haunt us. And unless you're deeply steeped in the work, you don't recognize that that's the problem. You know, folks don't in, in San Francisco and Oakland today don't recognize, wow, in the 70s, we set in motion policy that would destroy our public education infrastructure as the best option. And now future generations of our kids are going to struggle as a result of that. And that's what's happening. And when I talk about that hundred million now, 40 million of that is white. That is not a problem of people just being shiftless and lazy. When one in three people are economically insecure in your nation, that is a design challenge. And that is in many ways a result of race-based policy that has now jumped host what may have been designed just to deal with me no longer is contained with just dealing with me. It infects and harms everyone. And so that's the unfinished business that I'm excited that we get to do. And you're right. We live in a messy world with folks who have every right to have all sorts of views that they want to have. And our job is to see their humanity as well and figure out where we can get some work done, as hard as that might be. That is the maturity and the growth that is necessary to fully participate in a democracy that is free. So that is why race is so important. It is the operating system, one of the important operating systems of the nation. And if we don't want that to be an operating system, we've got to continue to be vigilant about how do we replace it. And we're only now getting to a place where we can even openly acknowledge it in, with a broader swath of the nation. And so that's why it matters, because if we want future generations of our children to be successful, no matter what color of their skin, we better deal with this issue. And the last thing I'll say on this is this. When you look at Ross Chetty's data around mobility, it basically shows us that, you know, it doesn't really matter what color your skin, you know, mobility is dead. The zip code that you're born in is pretty much the zip code that you're going to be in for the rest of your life. We're better than that as a nation. And so to me, while others would like for us to stop talking about these things, I think it's important for us to talk about them and do the work to see them and to remove the barriers. We don't have to harp on it every day. We just need to be about the work of creating something that is just and fair. That, to me, is the liberatory work that is worthy of leaders existing today and institutions existing today. Uh, and it it's, I'm speaking for myself, it feels like hard work, slow going work. I feel like you and I can go and talk about what we're talking about in certain communities and people would uh, look at us and they'd, they'd get it right away and we could go to other communities and we would get some of the blankest stares. And I've, I've had people really smart educated people say to me, uh, what's race have to do with any of this? So there's just, there's so much work to do here. And I'm assuming that your leadership and policy links leadership is one part education and awareness, one part advocacy and policy, uh, one part 
uh, building bridges to places where you know folks on uh, on the other side need to get on the bridge and need to meet in the middle. That's right, and you know it's one of the gifts of being born in the middle of the country. You know, I've gotten to be around all sorts of every walk of life, even in the military. And what I'm, you know, I tell people, you know, the cross of exclusion is not mine to bear. It, it's quite freeing to know that when I wake up every day, I don't actually really have to struggle to ask myself, will I do something for those white people? <laughs> it, it, that's just not that's not in my head and in my heart. <laughs> I get up wanting to help every last one of that hundred million plus that need us to help them. It's a freeing place to be in. And I think that is where this nation has to go. You know, just because this nation is about to become a nation of color does not mean it gets better. It only gets better if we all have the right consciousness for living in a thriving multiracial democracy. And living in a thriving multiracial democracy means that we design for the all in the equity definition. We design for the all that are in our founding documents. That's the unrealized work and potential in this nation. And so to me, you know, folks may not get it. And what I simply say to folks who don't get race is great. You don't get race, don't get race. But can you work in service of everyone? Can you do that? Because see, if you could just begin to do that, then, okay, you don't have to be the one that has to talk about it. But therein lies the rub. Race always raises its head when we start talking about helping and seeing the humanity of everyone. So the very folks who will be quick to say, Why, what does race matter? Ask them who should get support when there's a flood. Ask them who should get support when there's a fire. Ask them who should get the support in a pandemic. And it, all of a sudden, it will devolve into worthiness. It will devolve into that hierarchy of human value that I'm talking about. And we're better than that. And so the beauty, the gift that I have is to have been around seminal leaders enough to know that this stuff doesn't change overnight and you got to plant your flag somewhere and be there. I'm not going anywhere. This is the work I'm going to do till I take my last breath. So I, 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 the, what's fun for me is this is all that's left for me to do. And when you have that commitment, you, it, you can just relax and just do the slow, steady work of beginning to join with other people. That slow, steady work, like in our equity manifesto, there is a phrase that says it begins by joining. That's our work. Love that. It begins by joining. That's right. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, I know I've got to let you go. I want to ask you about one last thing, Michael, uh, because I know you're uh, you're doing some emerging uh, work leading on corporate racial equity. And uh, at Share Our Strength, we work with a lot of corporate partners. We've got a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast from the corporate sector. What should we understand about corporate racial equity? You should understand that corporate racial equity isn't a fad. You know, they, they, all like I said, all three sectors have come to understanding that it is time for this nation to see the humanity of everyone and work on their behalf. And corporate America is playing their part in that work. And what that means is that corporate America um, has a significant role to play in what happens to our environment. It has a significant role to play in who has jobs and who does not. It has significant roles to play in how our cities are designed and connecting people up to opportunity. And that's why they're taking this work on, because they see it as a core part of their, their value chain, not as charity work. And so we should support them. We should be patient. 
as they learn how to do this and build this muscle. And we should also be demanding. But what I would also ask us to think about is, it is time for us to not just point the finger at someone else, because we all have work to do. This is a season of awakening for every last one of us who choose to be on that journey. We all have work to do. And it's a time for us to be humble and stop warring with each other and to figure out where can we support each other? Where can we do what Gardner says at the right times and in the right with the right grace, be loving critics of each other, including ourselves? But more importantly, how can we just join to do the work? Corporate America has a superpower that is needed. They can bend the legal and regulatory frame of this nation to their will. We need them to help us normalize that the unfinished business of this nation is to work in service of every single person in this nation. And that is where we're going. That's where we're headed. And we're years away from that. But that's the muscle that we're building. Well, I I know you're saying what you're saying because you and I both see a lot of the finger pointing that you'd referred to, uh, and it's about joining uh, more than it is about uh, pointing. And I think if people take those words to heart, I think we're going to see a lot of progress. Uh, We've been talking with Dr. Michael McAfee, the president and CEO of Policy Link. Such an honor to have you on the podcast, Michael. Uh, Learn a lot every time I listen to you. Grateful that you were willing to come in person uh, and spend your time with the Share Our Strength staff, it left an indelible impression on our entire team. And I think you'll see uh, your words and your wisdom reflected in our work going forward. Uh, And I hope you'll promise to uh, come back on the podcast when uh, you write uh, the book that that, that I and many others want you to write. I promise. Thank you. Please visit adpassionandstir.com. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share Add Passion and Stir with a friend and rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Whittle's team at District Productive and Johanna Weber of Pop and Awe with support from our team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. They include Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.